The title of our sermon is, is When We Doubt, or maybe, maybe we call this Encouragement in Seasons of Doubt. And the story that Tina read was John the Baptist in prison sending a couple of disciples, a few disciples, asking Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for another one? Uh, right away we know this story rings with authenticity, right? Uh, we've heard people say things like that one of the reasons that the Bible was written is they made up stories about Jesus in order to get people to come to church. And I'm trying to picture how this particular story would fit into that kind of narrative. I want you to picture a church in the first century saying, well, outreach has been kind of slow. How do we get more people into the church? Well, how about we make a story up about John the Baptist, who everybody admires, questioning if Jesus is the Messiah? Ah, that's a great way to get more people into the church. A story like this rings with authenticity and cuts against a narrative like that that is commonly taught in our world. Because here's a better theory, because it actually happened. And because the gospel writers put it in here for our encouragement. So I want to talk about seasons of doubt. John is in prison. And let's talk about a number of things that maybe can encourage us as we wrestle with doubts in our own lives. And the first thing is this. Let's state the obvious, the fact of doubt. If John the Baptist was harassed by doubt, I think it's reasonable to say that all followers of Jesus, most followers of Jesus, are going to struggle with the same. One of the things that shocks us here in this passage, it's not that somebody is doubting. It's not even that a great Christian is doubting. It's specifically who is doubting. I look at passages where the disciples doubt. Take, for example, Peter. Peter is the leader of the 12 apostles. There's a couple of places in Scripture where Peter really doubts what Jesus says. He's often rebuked for it, like in Matthew chapter 16, or there at the resurrection when he goes back to fishing and quits being an apostle. Uh, even when Peter doubts, that, that doesn't really shock me. I expect that from Peter. There's a certain humanness to Peter that I pick up in the text. When I read the story about Thomas, and he says, I won't believe unless I see his hands pierced, and whatever's going through Thomas's mind, I'm not really shocked by that. I'll even take it a step further. Take James, the brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same house as Jesus. He witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He wrote the book of James. This is the James that was the pastor in Jerusalem and led the Jerusalem council over which all the apostles came and talked about justification by faith. And yet we find James, during Jesus' earthly ministry, doubted if Jesus was the Messiah with the rest of the brothers of Jesus and the family of Jesus. I'm not really shocked by that. I'm just going to be candid with you. I'm really shocked when I open to a passage like Luke chapter 7 and John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one that Jesus says here in verse 27, is something like, or 29, this is the greatest that has been born to women. A fancy first century way of saying, of all the prophets, this is the one on the top of the totem pole, so to speak. This is the one that struggled with doubt. It's a shock. If John the Baptist can struggle with doubt, I think it's fair to say that many of us are going to experience the same. This is such a shock that if you read commentators, what people say about this passage, they find all kinds of ways to say what the, pas- the opposite of what the passage clearly says. So, uh, for example, some of the commentators say things like, there's no way John the Baptist was doubting. He was only doing this for the benefit of his disciples. Others believe that this is chronologically out of order. This didn't happen early. This happened way early in John's ministry before he said, like, behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
And what those commentators are doing, all in good faith, by the way, is they are explaining away the very clear meaning of the text because they're as shocked as we are by this passage. John the Baptist is questioning if Jesus is the Messiah. I think the obvious point here is if John the Baptist is harassed by a degree of doubt, certainly it's reasonable to assume that followers of Jesus are going to experience the same. Think about all the experience John had with Jesus. What a privileged position John was in. They're from the same family. Their mothers are are, are sisters. Remember that story when they come together and the moms are pregnant and John leaps in the womb? Something really special there. Or how about the baptism of Jesus? When, when, When Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit descends like a dove. This is what John, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist hears the voice of God at the baptism of Jesus. And then there's the confession. He's so confident early in his ministry that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, behold the Lamb of God. His own disciples start to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew, by the way. And remember what John says when that happens? He didn't just say, I'm good with it. He says, this must happen. He must increase, I must decrease. We're talking about that John the Baptist. This John the Baptist had a kindred spirit to Jesus. They preached in similar categories, like calling people the den of vipers. That's half of preaching. They, they, they are, John the Baptist and Jesus are, are so close in their ministry to so many people that when, 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 you know what happens in Matthew 16? Jesus says, whom do people say that I am? And the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist. Because Jesus reminded them of John the Baptist. Herod made this mistake. When he takes the head of John the Baptist and he hears about Jesus, he's terrified. Why? He thinks John the Baptist has come back from the dead. John the Baptist is huge, not only in the Bible, but even in non-canonical works. Read Josephus, the Jewish historian, that gives a whole bunch of press to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a really, really big deal. John the Baptist, if you said, I want you to name one person who would never doubt It's got to be John. I get it with Peter. I get it with Thomas. John will never doubt. All this, and John is still given to doubts. All the experience with Jesus. John the Baptist. If doubts can plague John the Baptist, it's fair to say that doubts can come into the hearts of any one of us. And if a prophet this great can be hit with doubt, so can we. If I can use a little old English on you here, think it not strange when you find yourself wrestling with doubts. Don't think you're in a category by yourself. Don't think that doesn't happen to other Christians in the church. Don't think that doesn't happen to people that stand up in front of the church and talk about the Bible. Don't think that doesn't happen to people like John the Baptist. That doesn't justify all our doubts, but it puts me in pretty good company, I think. Another thing we should say is this. Because we're seeing John the Baptist doubting here, we need to avoid binary thinking. A lot of us think that if doubt creeps into my mind or into my heart, that means I'm not believing in Jesus. We're thinking too much in binary terms there. It's not I believe or I don't believe. Doubt is not synonymous with unbelief. That'd be a mistake that we would make. In reality, when you're a Christian, it's not like the light is on or the light is off. It's not like you're flipping a switch on and off. When you look at someone like John the Baptist, it's really more about like a dimmer switch. The, the light's always on. It's just a matter of how bright that is. 
And sometimes we go through things in life that are really difficult. And we're going to talk about these. John is in prison. He's very disillusioned with what's going on in the world right now. He's wondering. But it's not like the light is out. We would never take a passage like this and say, John the Baptist is showing himself to be an unbeliever. We don't want to think in those binary terms. It's not faith on, faith off. I would also say that doubt may very well be a permanent fixture in a Christian life. And I'll use this illustration once again later, but you have to think about an immune system. An immune system is constantly pushing back against diseases. You realize right now at this moment your immune system is pushing back against diseases? Sometimes it's really ramped up. There are people today that won't be able to join us because their immune system is really pushing back and they're sick in bed with a fever. But every moment of every day, your immune system's active and it's pushing back. Doubts come into a healthy faith is one that's constantly pushing back like an immune system. And sometimes the virus lays us in bed for a while, but eventually that healthy immune system kicks in and pushes back. We need to get some encouragement in seasons of doubt. Number two, let's talk about the benefit of doubt. What do I mean by that? The same doubt that harasses us can offer us a benefit. It can be an invitation to grow. Again, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very obvious part of this text, but it's an important one to point out that the same doubt that is harassing John the Baptist, he's going to get some answers, and that's going to strengthen him in his faith. The same doubt that harasses you, when you get a chance to work through those things, and you really give those to God, and you let the process take place, that's an invitation to grow, so long as we don't quit halfway through. C.S. Lewis wrote a bunch of letters. You know, he's the or the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and um, Chronicles of Narnia, things like that, right? C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of letters to friends. These are the old-fashioned emails, right? And he wrote a bunch to Arthur Greaves, a friend of his. Listen to what he says. I think the whole trouble with me is a lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convince me of God's existence. But the irrational deadweight of my own skeptical habits, the spirit of the age, the cares of the day, steal away my lively feeling of the truth. That's good language there. In other words, doubts have a way of harassing us. They have a way of stealing away our joy. Think how a thief comes, steals away. The old church fathers talked about doubt as a wedge. It's an interesting word, a wedge. Because it would put a wedge between you and God. And over time, it can be pushed down to kind of push you away from God. One writer said doubt is like an attention-seeking child. You, you, you go to pay attention to your doubt, and then it kind of acts up even more. Right? So that can happen. Doubt has a way of harassing us. But there's a flip side to this that we want to consider from this text, and it's this. Doubt is also a sign of life. It's also a sign of healthy struggle. I mean, if you and I are out in the ocean on a 20-foot boat, and in the middle of the ocean we find two people, there's two people out in the ocean, and, you know, there's no boat around. Maybe their boat sank, so you take that little white, you know, life thing and you throw out the tube, and one of them just flails for their life to go after it, but the other one is face down. Which one is alive? It's the one struggling. Because dead people don't struggle for life. But when you have a healthy faith and ideas are introduced to you or a crisis is introduced to you and all of a sudden you're plagued with doubts and you're really wrestling with that and it's keeping you up at night, 
I don't doubt for a minute that can be a wedge that if left there can drive you away from the Lord. But at the same time, that's a sign of life. Because dead people don't struggle for life. I can tell you that as a pastor, and even as a Christian, I'm fine with people flailing in the faith. I'm good with that. I talk to a lot of people about their doubts, and maybe you do too. People come in with questions. They're tormented by doubts. That doesn't bother me at all. You know what bothers me? When they cave into those and they stop struggling with those. That's what it means to be face down in the water. And so ultimately here, doubt is an invitation for John the Baptist to grow. And doubt can be an invitation for you and I to grow. So here's Alistair McGrath. Listen to what he says. He talks about the immune system. We already mentioned it. He says, a doctor once remarked, he said that life was a permanent battle against all sorts of diseases. The good health being little more than the ability to keep the disease at bay. Let me repeat. Good health is little more than the ability to keep disease at bay. The same disease, the same virus that threatens the healthy body, offers the body an opportunity to get stronger. The same cold that gets passed around at your office that threatens your health is the same cold that's going to make your immune system stronger for the next time. And in John the Baptist's life, the same thing is going to take place. He's plagued with doubts. He's plagued with confusion. He has a lot of questions. And yet the same doubt that injects into John the Baptist's mind and heart is eventually going to build a stronger immunity for him. The same thing can happen with us as Christians. All right, number three, let's talk about the causes of doubt. The cause, the perfect storm can rattle the foundations of our faith. So I want you to think about a hurricane or a really bad storm of some kind. And you have at least three elements. First of all, you have rain. The rain comes down and, boy, flooding can take place. That's a real problem. And then the winds are blowing, maybe 80 miles an hour, really blowing. And then there's terrible lightning that just seems to strike everywhere and trees are falling and people are really terrified. By and large, we can handle any one of those. We can handle bad rain. We can handle bad winds. But when the three of them come together, it just feels like there's a perfect storm. And what's happening in the life of John the Baptist is not one thing. There are three things that are really developing into a perfect storm that are throwing his faith into a tailspin. And I want to point out these three things. The first one is this. The first one is unmet or unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations. So let's think about John here. He is suffering from unfulfilled expectations. So to put this simply, what were John's expectations? Remember what John was preaching? John preached things like this. The winnowing fork is in his hand, that is Jesus. To clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat in the barn, the chaff, he will burn it with unquenchable fire. John believed that Jesus was going to judge the wicked. And it was, it was going to happen almost right away. John the Baptist believed that Jesus was going to judge the wicked. And yet John is being judged by the what? The wicked Herod. We'll go a step further. Remember what Jesus preached? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's chapter 4. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners from Isaiah and recovery of the sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. John the Baptist knows the story of Jesus. He knows what Jesus is preaching. Jesus is preaching, I am going to set the captives free. And John the Baptist is where? In a prison. (laughs) 
you've got to imagine John the Baptist is thinking to himself, Jesus, you said you were going to set the prisoners free, and now I'm behind bars. This doesn't make any sense to John. John the Baptist has an expectation of what Jesus will do, and it's an unfulfilled expectation. He thinks Jesus will do X, but Jesus is doing Y, and that kind of throws him into a tailspin. This is an unfulfilled expectation. And unfulfilled expectations can be a terrible source of doubt for Christians. Remember the story of Elijah? He calls down fire from heaven. Now, in the narrative of Kings, when Elijah calls down fire from heaven and consumes the false prophets, that's not to put on a display. He's not trying to one-up the prophets of Baal. What's happening in that story is Elijah believes that that is going to lead to a revival in Israel. Israel has turned their back on God. He's called fire down from heaven. How could you not turn back to God after seeing that take place? But people don't turn back to God. That's an unfulfilled expectation. And in the next narrative, Elijah's under a tree saying, Lord, just take my life. I'm worse than my father's. They couldn't turn the hearts of people. I can't turn the hearts of people. There's a terrible stubbornness. What Elijah is suffering with is stupendous religious disappointment. He unfulfilled expectations. The same thing that happens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where they're walking along and Jesus comes up to them after the resurrection. They don't know who Jesus is there at the moment. And they say the most bizarre statement you'll find in Scripture, which is, we thought he was the Christ, but they crucified him. That's an unfulfilled expectation. Or how about Moses, who was promised that God would deliver the people into the promised land, But a couple years into that journey, he thought it was going to happen right away. Here we are 40 years later, and he's upset. And he strikes the rock and makes it even worse. In other words, it's an unfulfilled expectation. I thought God was going to bring a revival to the country. I thought God was doing something through Jesus, but they crucified him. I thought we were going to end up in the promised land by now, but it hasn't taken place. All of that is unfulfilled expectation. It's a terrible source of doubt. It's the young mother of three whose husband is diagnosed with a disease. And she envisioned growing old together, raising their children together. And she's now going to hold the future there in her hands in tears. It's the young man that starts a small business and pours his life into it and prays over it and really believes God is in it. But then when it goes under, because of the economy or COVID or something like that, he's left to wrestle with unfulfilled expectations. We all have to deal with unfulfilled expectations. That's what John is dealing with. I thought he was going to set the captives free. He doesn't seem to be doing that. Number two, personal pain and suffering. And the reason I say this is personal is because there's always been people in prison I mean, even when John heard Jesus preach, he's setting captives free. People were being arrested. But now it's happening to John personally. And that's when it really strikes us. C.S. Lewis has this quote where he says, If I really cared as, uh, as, as I thought I did about the sorrows in the world, I would not have been so overwhelmed when one came my way. That's powerful. Moses You know, it may have been wrong to kill the Egyptian when he saw him beating the Hebrew slave, but 
something happened when he saw it in his heart. You know, it became very personal to him. He's like, that, that, I mean, there's always been oppression in the world. Or take Job. There's always been suffering in the world. But Job laments when it happens to him personally. David laments when it happens to his family. All the sorrows that happened to David's life, that's been going on in the world forever. That happened a million times over in the world. But David's just like the rest of us and like C.S. Lewis. When it hits us personally, that's when we find ourselves questioning God. A philosophy professor, Peter Van Inwigen, says this. This is a powerful quote. Angels may weep because the world is filled with suffering. A human weeps because his daughter, she and not another, has died of leukemia that very night. Or because her village, the only one she knows, is burning and the bodies of her husband and her son lie at her feet. What is the good professor saying? There's always been pain and suffering in the world. But when it hits us personally, that's when we start to question if God is really in control. If you and I right now could just look at the suffering that's taking place in the world at this moment, that would absolutely shake us. When it hits us personally, that's when we really feel it. And that's when we start to question God. Whatever Job experienced there in Job chapter 1 has happened to a lot of people before him. But he only starts to lament then. Unfulfilled expectations, personal pain, and let's call it increasing hostility towards God and his people. The third, the, 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 the lightning storm begins. Increased hostility. We don't have time to look at all the passages, but in chapter 6, Jesus talks about, or Luke writes about the increased hostility. They're suspicious of Jesus, where he once enjoyed the, the gratitude of the crowds. Now they're starting to turn on him. He's uh, healing on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are getting angry. He's forgiving people, and that's really getting under people's skin. So what we have here is a perfect storm. Unfulfilled expectations, personal pain and suffering, increased hostility, and these three streams coming into the life of John the Baptist just at a moment when he finds himself in prison and he's really starting to doubt and question. Uh, there's a historian, William Barclay, that when he writes about this passage, he talks about, a, he's a Scottish writer, he talks about a, an old prison in, in Carlisle and he says they, they put the window in the prison. It was a subterranean. And they put the window high enough where you couldn't see out of it. And he says if you go and visit the prison today, you can see where there's two hand marks at the ledge where the people would jump up, the prisoner would grab, and they would pull themselves up and hold on as long as they could just to see the sun and just to see the, you know, the trees and things outside. And that's John the Baptist here, he says. And I think he's right. John the Baptist is holding on for dear life for hope. And he sends a couple disciples to Jesus. Are you the Messiah, or should I wait for another one to come? So let me talk about this before we talk about solutions. I want to talk about community in doubt. Community in doubt. We can help others live and grow by, by us living at the intersection of, of grace and truth. And what I mean is, how do we help each other with doubts? This is not just a great passage about how we deal with our own personal doubts. But how do we deal as a community with people that struggle with doubt? Could be someone in your family. Could be someone in a pew next to you. Could be another Christian. Could be someone just wrestling. And in order for us to be as effective as we possibly can as a church, we have to do what Jesus does here, which is live at the intersection of grace and truth. I just want to point this out before we move on. Notice, first of all, the first thing Jesus does is he's very gracious to John. He's very gracious. 
Uh, he doesn't say, John, how dare you doubt? And turn to the crowd. And he didn't turn to the crowd and say, look at this guy over here. He's losing his faith, you know? What Jesus doesn't do is just fire a bunch of truth bullets at him. Jesus is very gracious with what he does with John the Baptist. He looks at the two disciples and he says, or two or three, and he says, I want you to go back to John and tell him what you see. The blind are getting their sight. The lepers are being healed. And I am preaching the good news to the poor. In other words, he's telling John, I am the Messiah. But he's doing it in a very gracious way. Jesus here is dealing with an honest doubter at the intersection of grace and truth. And if you and I are going to help each other through doubts, we have to live at the intersection of grace and truth. We want to be a very gracious, gentle community. When people have doubts, we don't just want to fire truth bullets at them. We don't want to say, you know, you've come with doubts, and I'm going to give you a book, and this ought to just solve all your problems right here, you know? Frankly, some people need hugs. Wear your mask, but give them a hug. Some people need you to just circle around them and pray. Sometimes they need to just vent because something happened. We want to be very gracious and very careful. But what we don't want to do is turn that into a therapy group where we don't help anybody out of their doubt. And so what Jesus does is he's very gracious and careful with John, but he also answers John's question. John, this is what's going on. What he's doing is pulling John out of his doubt. If we're gentle but not truthful, that doesn't pull anybody out of doubt. If we're truthful but not gentle, that's not going to pull anybody out of doubt because they're not going to listen. We want to live at the intersection of grace and truth. And Jesus models something beautifully here for the church to be approachable and truthful at the same time. The church should be the most approachable community you could possibly have in the community. People ought to be able to bring doubts. They ought to be able to bring their fears. They ought to be able to cry when something happens at work or something happens with a neighbor or they experience personal pain and suffering. For doubts to come into their mind, they ought to know they're welcome in the community of God's people. But at the same time, we want to encourage people with truth so they don't wallow in that. There's a, there's a ladder, a way that they can be pulled up. Grace and truth. Jesus models that beautifully. All right, let's do the last point. How about strength and doubt? Strength and doubt. And by God's grace, Jesus can strengthen us in times of doubt. So I just want to give you three ways that Jesus strengthens John in times of doubt. First of all, Jesus communicates the word of God. And this is so important because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We are not going to reason people out of doubt. We're not going to be able to argue people out of doubt. But the word of God is powerful. And as we share the word of God, it has a power that our arguments don't have. And so what Jesus says in the passage, he says, go tell John, verse 22, tell him what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news, and blesses the one who is not offended by me. Six miracles Jesus gives here. And the word of God is intended to resonate in John's heart like a juniper shrub. You know what a juniper shrub is? You know, down when I lived in South Carolina, there was new construction everywhere. I mean, you drive for miles and miles, and there's new construction down there, you know. And uh, what you have to do, of course, with new construction, you've got to find a way to stop the erosion because all the dirt's been turned over. 
And they, I would see, I'd go in these subdivisions and there'd be juniper shrubs from what would look like miles and miles, you know. Those little juniper shrubs that would, you know, they'd plant to keep the banks from eroding. And, and in our, our hearts will erode, right? But when the Word of God takes root, it's not just like a big oak tree, though it's that. It's the juniper shrubs, and it's keeping the bank in place. And so Jesus here shares the Word of God from Isaiah with John, and that's going to resonate in John's heart. We need to have that kind of confidence in the Scriptures, where we share a word with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pull them out of that despair, not just with our own arguments and our own logic, not by might, not by power, but by my word, says the Lord. You've got to have that confidence in the Scriptures. The second thing I want us to notice is that Jesus does not build John's self-esteem. Rather, Jesus points to himself. So I want you to look at verse 24 for a minute. Or, uh, at verse 24, the messengers of John had gone. Jesus begins to speak. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, he's saying of John the Baptist, this guy had a lot of conviction. You guys know it. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? What he means by that is they would wear what was called soft raiment or clothing in the king's court. You tried to impress the king by putting on your best. Jesus is saying he's a man of conviction. He's a prophet of conviction. And he wasn't trying to impress anybody but God. He's, in other words, he is, he is touting the virtues of John the Baptist. Behold, to those who are dressed in splendid clothing and living luxury, they're in the king's court. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You will prepare the way. He's talking about the Elijah figure. I tell you, get this. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I want you to think about what Jesus has just said of John the Baptist. There has never been a prophet, never mind a person, there has never been a prophet born in this world that is greater than John. How would you like that said about you? Do you think that would encourage you? Let's back up for a minute. I want you to think about a sports hero that you like. I don't care who it is, Aaron Judge, LeBron Judge, whoever you like. Imagine they're getting interviewed on ESPN, and they pick up the microphone and go, hey, I had a good game. But, you know, Jimmy over here, Jimmy is like the greatest person, isn't he? And they talk about you for five, you'd have to do that false humility thing. Me? No, come on, you know? It's, that would be an amazing honor to have somebody say that about you, especially somebody. How would you like the Son of God to say that about you? If anything is going to pull you out of doubt. It's got to have Jesus saying something nice about you. You would think. What Jesus says about John, he said behind his back. Did you notice that? When the disciples of John went away, Jesus said all these nice things about John. Notice what the narrative is teaching us here. What John needs to learn is not a lot of nice things about himself. He needs to be reminded about all the nice things about Jesus. No, it's nice to be boosted up with praise. It is essential to have our eyes on Christ. And as we're wrestling through doubts as a community or with our friends or even internally, we want to make sure we're looking at Christ, not just trying to build ourselves up with some some self-esteem. The last thing is this. Jesus indicates that he is going to do all that God said he would do, but God is going to be on his own timetable. 
and this is really important, I think, for us to understand as Christians. What, I'm going to try to remind you of a passage. Remember what Jesus said here? Here, let me read from Isaiah, right? This is where Jesus quotes, by the way. He quotes from two passages, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Listen carefully because we're going to do a quiz in a minute. The eyes of the blind shall be open. This is Isaiah. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captains, to open the prisons to those who are bound. Remember the six miracles Jesus mentioned earlier? Which one of these does he omit? The opening of the prison to let those that are bound out. Jesus quotes Isaiah, but he leaves that line off. Notice what he says again. It's worth rendering. Verse 22. Go tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good booze preached to them. That's it. You know what John is thinking? Set the captives free. Let people out of prison. And the disciples go, he didn't mention that one, (laughs) you know? It's not that Jesus doesn't believe Isaiah. He's going to do all of this. But he's going to do each in his own time. And what Jesus is communicating to John is you may have some unfulfilled expectations. Every single thing that God said that's going to come to pass is going to come to pass. But I'm going to do that on my own timetable. He's calling John to trust him that he will fulfill his promises. But he's going to do it in his own way, in his own time. As you and I wrestle with doubt, especially as we wonder what it's got up to in the world, why isn't there more peace in the world? Why do I feel like my life is falling apart? Every promise that God has made to us will be fulfilled. But we want to remember it is always fulfilled in God's perfect timing. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for caring about us and loving us. We need your help, Lord. We need those eyes of faith so that we can see clearly. And I pray that you'd remind us that we don't need to boost ourselves up or other people, though a word of encouragement is always helpful. But we need to lift up Christ. He needs to be the center of the church and the center of our lives. That's where we will find our strength. Help the word of God to be spoken into each other's lives. That it would prevent the erosion from taking place in our hearts and build that bank of faith up. I also pray, Lord, that we would put our trust and our hope in you. We would not put our hope in our own timing or our own way or lean on our own understanding, but we'd understand that you will set the captives free. You will make all the wrongs of the world right, but you will do that on your own timetable and not that which we demand. So we trust you. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And we ask you, Lord, to give us the faith we need. Encourage us today as we wrestle, sometimes in doubt. And I pray today as we walk out of the congregation here, out of the church, that dimmer light would shine all the more bright as a result of us meeting here today. In Jesus' name, amen.